consider the breathtaking arrogance and pride of King Belshazzar, recognizing that he is using items that are fashioned for the worship of God to serve himself. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb, and we're in our current series in the book of Daniel, where we're asking, how can God's people not only survive, but thrive in Babylon? For resources and information about this teaching series, or to learn about our ministry, please visit us at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. Have you ever heard the phrase, the writing is on the wall? Typically, it means that something has occurred that is really bad, and or something about to happen is going to be really bad, and there's, there's nothing that we can do about it. And that phrase comes from what we're going to be reading this morning from Daniel chapter 5. And so, as always, if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to grab those and look for Daniel chapter 5. While you're looking for that, the year is 539 BC, and if you recall what I shared with you all the way back in week one of the series, we started in 605 BC. So about 65 years have now elapsed since Daniel and all of his friends were exiled to Babylon. It's been 23 years since King Nebuchadnezzar has died, and it's been somewhere between 25 to 45 years since Daniel has put, an ink, has put ink to page and has written his incredible testimony that now he believes in Israel's God. And so where we finished last week with the words that he shared with us in Daniel 4, verse 37, he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And so what we learned last week is that that, that word, that final word that came from King Nebuchadnezzar was a message to all of us that God can take the hardest of hearts, a heart of stone, and can turn it into a heart of flesh. But then also this week, we see that those words, that God can take a heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh, or that he can um, exalt the weak and humble the proud, that ultimately that is a segue into what we are going to hear this morning with a new king, Belshazzar. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to look at this with me, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And I want you to have this picture in your mind. Here's what we're about to read. King Belshazzar has invited a thousand of his nobles to come into the king's gate, a place where very, very few people have ever stepped foot before. One of the ancient wonders of the world, the Garden of Babylon, is in the king's court. And so as a thousand of the most powerful people in the most powerful nation in the world are walk, walking the steps of cobblestone, they see the gate open, they walk through the gate, and their fires are dimly lit. And wine is everywhere for them to drink. And ladies of the night are there to entertain their guests. And animals uh, from distant lands and beautiful birds are on shining display for all to see. And this is the image that we see in our minds with this extravagant party that Belshazzar has given his guests. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet 
for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. All right, so I can't spend too much time on this this morning, but for the sake of all of you historians out there, I really want to lay this at your feet. We have to see who is Belshazzar. The reason why this is important to share with you is because for years, basically from the 4th century all the way through the 20th century, Daniel chapter 5 was used as the quintessential proof that, uh, that scripture is unreliable. That it's filled with made-up stories, that it's not really true, and the reason why they leaned on that is because there is no historical evidence that Belshazzar ever existed. We know that King Nebuchadnezzar existed. We know that he was the most powerful king that the world had ever seen up to that point. That he laid siege on the Egyptians and the Persians were no more. That he exiled the people of Judah and that Daniel lived. All of that is true. We also know from historical evidence that Nebuchadnezzar did go crazy for a while. And then he was reinstated as the king. We can find that through the histories of Herodotus and many other historians during this time. However, there was no evidence that a man named Belshazzar was the king of Babylon, let alone Belshazzar ever existing in the first place. We know that Nabonidus was the king during this time. He was son of Nebuchadnezzar and he was the king. And then interestingly, a, a dramatic turn of events took place not too long ago when an archaeologist by the name of John George Taylor was excavating a ziggurat. We got a picture of this. He's excavating this ziggurat, which is in Babylon or modern-day Iraq, right next to the Euphrates River. And while they're excavating this, they find an inscription written by none other than Nabonidus. And in this inscription that you see up on the screen, he is giving up a prayer to his gods for his son by the name of none other than, can you guess? Belshazzar. Isn't that cool? Like, isn't that really interesting? Like, no one knew who he was from the 4th through the 20th century. And they're all like, see, the Bible is filled with made-up stories. It doesn't exist. And then they find this and they say, oh, there he is. And then in other writings within that ziggurat, they discover that King Nabonidus, he moved away to what is modern-day Ghana for about 10 years, and he left his son in charge as king regent for those 10 years, leading up to when the Babylonians were crushed by the Medes and the Persians. And so at that time, his son, Belshazzar, was king regent. And I just think that's really neat because, again, it's an invitation for all of us to ask hard questions and to recognize that there might be times when we have doubts or we have suspicions or we're curious about what the text is ultimately saying. And I think it's really cool that for centuries we didn't know this. And now we do. Now we do. So cool. So then some of you might be asking, why does the Bible say in verse 2, look there again, that Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar's father, because we actually know now that Belshazzar was grandson to Nebuchadnezzar, not son. Why, why does he say his father? And in fact, by the time we finish this chapter, he will call him father five times. 
Well, what we learn is in both Hebrew and in Aramaic, the word for father can mean biological father or ancestral father. So I grew up in the Pentecostal church, and one of the songs I learned as a kid was, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot. Remember that? Anyone? Anyone? Anyone sing that song? Thank you for testifying. So that's what we all learned, right? So he is not my father. My father's name is Gordon. But by the same token, I can say Abraham is my father because he's my ancestral father. And that's the word that's being used here to describe Belshazzar's relationship with King Nebuchadnezzar. And that's really important for us to see on the front end. So here's what we see. Nebuchadnezzar's uber-privileged, spoiled grandson is on the throne. And he is hosting a party. Like this is an all-out rager. Right? This is like a frat party meets Super Bowl tailgate party, all mixed up together. The, the wine is flowing, and they're all having a great time together. Then after a few hours of drinking and dancing, Belshazzar stands before all of his guests, and he makes a royal announcement. He whispers, this is kind of the way I see it in my mind, he whispers to some of his servants, he makes a command to them, ten of them run off. And then they come back in holding goblets of gold and silver, glasses of wine. And then everyone is shocked and appalled when he says, these are the goblets of the God of Israel. Take a glass, fill it with wine. Let's have a toast to our power and our strength and our sovereignty. No one can stand in our way. In defiance against God, he says that we are powerful. We are the ones who destroyed Israel's God. And as I've shared with you before, all the surrounding nations were not afraid of Israel. Israel was puny and weak, and their military was bad, and they never had fortified walls, right? They were like podunk farmers, right? They, they didn't really have much going on in their life. That's the way that they were viewed by everyone else around them. And yet, they were terrified of Israel's God. Because they heard the stories of what happened in Egypt. The ten plagues bringing them down to their knees. Or how the Sea of Reeds was split so that they could walk through on dry ground. Or how millions of people survived in a wilderness. No, like you can't even survive as a single person, let alone millions, in a wilderness. Or how they went up to Jericho and they went do-do-do-do and the walls fell down. They know these stories. They're terrified of Israel's God. So much so that even when Nebuchadnezzar takes all these items from Israel's God's temple, they put them on display, but they don't touch him. They don't touch him. But Belshazzar says, take them out. Let's have a toast to celebrate our vigor and our strength. To showcase our power over and above the God of Israel. Look at verse 3. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. As they drank wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze and iron, of wood and of stone. So we see that Daniel writes exactly the same thing a second time. He doesn't want you to miss the significance of this act. He wants his readers to consider the breathtaking arrogance 
and pride of King Belshazzar and what he is inviting everyone else to do, recognizing that he is using items that are fashioned for the worship of God to serve himself. To serve himself. You can almost picture this in your mind. He's standing at the royal table. He says, a toast to our gods. A toast to all that we can do. No one can stand in our way to the thundering applause of all of his drunk guests. And one thing that you have to know here, we know this from extra-biblical resources through other historical documents, that the Medes and the Persians have been trying to ransack this city for the last number of months. They've been attacking the city for the last number of months. And so it's kind of ironic that they're having a party while the Medes and the Persians are no more than 70 to 50 kilometers away. Their whole armies are there, probably eating dinner, thinking about their next move. Like, how are we going to destroy the city? But I wish I had a whiteboard here to show you this. The way that the city of Babylon was built is the front gates were 300 feet tall and 10 feet wide. Not 10 inches, 10 feet wide, thick, thick walls. Like you have to picture in your mind, kind of like the movie Troy, right? The Trojans versus the Greeks. And what did Troy have going for it? Their walls. The Greeks couldn't get through. In the same way, that's the story of the Babylonians. And they have enough storage of food to sit there for two years. Even on the side gates and the side walls, at least 150 feet high. The only area in which their walls were significantly shorter was right next to the Euphrates River. But there's a natural river there. How can they get across to the other side? Or so they thought. Keep that in mind as we keep reading. So this king is convinced that he has a firm grip on God and he has a firm grip on life and nothing can happen to him in the midst of a war he says, who can stand in our way? Bring out the goblets of God. Let's look at verse five. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Now, that's, that's a... Let's just say an oversimplified um, explanation of the translation in English. I think the most literal translation that we can get here is the knots of his joints were loosened. In other words, he just had a bowel movement. That's what's going on. He's afraid, and he just lost it. He's turned pale. He's wet his pants. That's what's going on in this story. The king summoned the enchanters and astrologers and diviners, then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads the writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain placed around his neck, and will be made the third highest ruler in the whole kingdom. Now, this is really cool to me. Why the third highest ruler and not the second? Jewish scholars and Christian scholars for years and years and years, they looked at this and they said, why third? Like when Joseph interpreted a dream, he became second in Egypt. And when Daniel interpreted a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar, he became second in command under Nebuchadnezzar. So why third here? Well, again, we've only figured out in the 20th century that Nabonidus is king, he's king regent, and the best that this king can do is say, I'll make you third. 
So even though, even as Christians, we didn't know what this meant, now we do. We say, oh, that makes perfect sense, right? There's king, king regent, third best, that's the best that I can do. I just think the Bible's so cool, right? That's so neat how that ends up working out. But despite such an incentive, all the wise men fail, and the king grows even more alarmed. Let's pick up at verse 10. The queen mother, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. It's a really interesting thing here. This is not the queen. This is the queen mother. So we know that this is one of two people, either Nebuchadnezzar's wife or Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. Nebuchadnezzar's wife or Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, someone who has not forgotten Daniel. And look in your Bible at verse 12. What does, he, what does she call Daniel? She says, Daniel. She doesn't call him by the name Belteshazzar that he has been named for the last 65 years. She calls him and refers to him by his given name, by Israel's God, which, by the way, remember what Daniel means, God is our judge. And Daniel is brought in to bring a judgment from God. She has not forgotten what Daniel and Daniel's God can do. She has not forgotten the dream interpretations. She has not forgotten the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. She has not forgotten when her husband or her father had gone mad for seven seasons, whether that's seven months or seven years, we don't know, but for a very, very long time but then was reinstated and gave his life over to Israel's God. She has not forgotten these things, and she says to her son or grandson, call for Daniel, and he will have an answer. Verse 18. Your majesty, says Daniel, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys, and he ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. Circle, highlight, underline. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven, you had the goblets from his temple brought to you and to your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praise gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds his, in his hands your very life in all its ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription this is the inscription that was written. 
meanie, meanie, tekel, parson. So here's what I want you to see. Meanie means numbered. It's unclear whether or not we know whether or not uh, Belshazzar and his wise men knew what the words said but didn't know what they meant or if they just didn't know what it said or meant. But either way, they didn't have the interpretation. Meanie means numbered. Verse 26, meanie, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed or weighted. So verse 27 says, Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And parson, or paris, means divided. And that's verse 28. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And as I shared with you already, that very night, less than 70 kilometers away, the army of the Medes and the Persians are already prepared to come in and to lay siege against Babylon. And that very night, Belshazzar will be put to death and the Medes and the Persians will move in. Look at verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. And so again, for all of you history buffs who love history and to account for biblical stories through extra biblical text to verify their claims, I would really encourage you to consider looking at what is called the histories of Herodotus. Herodotus is a historian who has written much on this account and what's happening during this time. And I want to share just one quote with you that I find so interesting. Again, I shared with you the way that Babylon is built, right? And that the great Euphrates River comes down on the one side, and therefore they didn't have walls very high. So this is the account of Herodotus and how the Medes and the Persians took over the most powerful nation of Babylon with very little bloodshed. He writes this. The Persians, who were posted, made their way into Babylon by the channel of the Euphrates, which had now sunk to the depth of about the middle of a man's thigh. Interesting. The Persians took them unaware because of the great size of the city. Those in the outer parts were overcome, but the inhabitants of the middle part knew nothing of it. Why? All this time they were dancing and celebrating a holiday which happened to fall then until they learned the truth only too well. Isn't that interesting? They're having a party. Again, if, if you know the story of Troy, right? Everyone's drunk out of their minds and they're laid out on the ground and the Greeks very easily walk on in and they take over the Trojans. And in the same way, that's how the story goes. Very little bloodshed. They just walk in because the Euphrates River fell and they take over the city the very night in which they are in a drunken stupor having a party. And we see that Daniel, through the power of God, has already interpreted this, right? We saw this already when Nebuchadnezzar has those dreams of the great statue. And Daniel says, you are that head made of gold, but the arms of silver, that is another kingdom that will take over yours. That's the Medes and the Persians. But then he says the same thing on this night to Belshazzar. This very night, the Medes and the Persians will take over and become the rulers of this land. So for the remainder of our time, I want us to look at the story, not just as an interesting historical account, but what does it mean for our lives too? What's the message for Babylon? But also, and equally important, what's the message 
for us. And so here's the first note that I put in your note sheet with respect to God's judgment, both then and now. It's this, God exalts the humble and humbles the proud. God exalts the humble and humbles the proud. So we are meant to compare and to contrast the story of the decision of Nebuchadnezzar and his grandson Belshazzar and to ask ourselves, have we humbled ourselves before the Lord? Do we have more in common with Nebuchadnezzar who at one time was proud and conceited and filled with pride but later humbled himself before God? Or are we more like Belshazzar who is still living in pride regardless of who is on the throne and who is sovereign over all things? And so that's the message that we have to learn. You and I are to walk in humility with God. Our pride and hubris must give way to humility. That's the message in a nutshell that we have to see as we compare and contrast the last two weeks of this story. So one thing we know from historical sources, and I've shared this already, is that the Babylonians knew that the Medes and the Persians are trying to take over the city. So here's my question. Why are they having a party in the first place? Like, why are they hosting an all-out kegger while this is going on? Why are they having, like, a sacrilegious worship service when they know their enemies are at their doorstep? Why are they doing that? Well, to help answer that question, I want to ask a question. How many of you, around my age or older, remember where you were on December 31st, 1999? Anyone? All right, be honest, loud and proud. Right? Many of us remember that night. I remember where I was. I was 11 years old. I just made a lot of you feel old. And some of you are like, 20th century? What's that? So here's what we know. Two or three months before this epic day, all of our friends, maybe even some of us, if I'm about to offend you, I apologize, but I'm just giving my account of what was happening at this time, were prepared for the worst. And what was going on? Y2K, the end of the world was upon us. And we knew that there was going to be some sort of computer bug and it was just going to annihilate the world, right? And there would be gas shortages and bank accounts would be emptied and the computers would crash and people would uh, destroy uh, restaurants and stores and so people were stockpiling food and I'm pretty sure even aliens are going to come down and beam us back up like it was doomsday during that time and I remember as an 11 year old saying like what is going on why are adults going a little bit crazy and even in my own family I remember this like we had some pretty radical responses or some people in my family they stockpiled food they put them all the way to the top in their houses so that they prepared for the worst. And my mom, bless her heart, I've shared this with you before, but she was big into the Left Behind series. So she was assuming that the rapture was going to come on that final day. And so we didn't know what was going to go on. Like if, if everything was going to be lost or if we should host a party or if uh, God was going to return. And so we just decided to do all of those things. So at the beginning of the night, uh, my mom prayed a prayer, you know, if, if the Lord comes, you know, take us with you. And then I got a glass of wine because, hey, you know, I might not live tomorrow, so 11-year-old gets a glass of wine. And then we waited till midnight, and I was living in Newfoundland at the time, 
And some of you might recall this, uh, the Newfoundland band Great Big Sea. They came out with their brand new song designed especially for the occasion. Fireworks are going, and they started singing, it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That's right. So that was my night. Pretty cool. Pretty epic. But we woke up the next morning, and nothing happened, and we moved on with life. But there's something that happens in these types of stories that paint a picture for us in our human nature. If our hope is not firmly rooted and secured ultimately in the hope of King Jesus and what he has done on the cross, then our natural response is going to be some of these things. And I want to give you the top three. So here's the first one. Uh, when we start losing control, we start, losing for, or we start looking for placebos, and one of those is we cling to what we can control. We cling to what we can control. We see Belshazzar doing the same thing, right? He brings out the gold and silver cups from the temple to showcase his power. And he says, even though the Medes and the Persians, they're trying to get in, they're trying to destroy our city, no one can stand in our way. Look at how big our, uh, our fences and our gates are. Look at all the food storage and supplies we have. We even have the consecrated goblets from Israel's God. Who can stand in our way? We cling to control. We cling to what we can control. And even in the book of Exodus, for those of you who have only been joining us recently, we walked through that book and we learned that the people of Israel were challenged by God to ask this question. Are you Goshening, drawing near to God, or are you Goshening his stuff? Which one? Are you Goshening and drawing near to God, or are you Goshening his things? And that's the same question for us today. We have to ask ourselves. And if we feel like we're losing control, if we don't know that God is sovereign and on his throne and everything will be okay because he wins, then we will cling to what we can control to try to control our own lives. Here's the second thing that we do. When we feel like we're losing control, we party like it's 1999. Remember Prince? Right? Did you know that in the year 2000, this was the... Uh, the hit pop album of the year, Party Like It's 1999. Exactly the same thing as what we do. Like if we don't have a sure and certain hope, then we might as well eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we're gonna die. And we might as well have a good time as we go. That makes perfect sense. Think about it logically. If you don't believe that eternity is laid out before us and these are your last days, you might as well go out like a shooting star. You might as well enjoy your life. Even the Apostle Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ had not been raised, your faith, Christians, is futile. You are still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they're lost too. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So he's essentially saying, if Christ was not raised, if none of this is true, do you know what Christians need? They just need a hug. Like they need a, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. You are wasting your life on all of this, all this gobbledygook, all this silliness that, that doesn't really exist. You are in fantasy land. You might as well enjoy your life. And that makes perfect sense if Christ was not raised, if we do not have the hope of Jesus Christ. And then number three, if we're losing control, we get religious. We get religious. One thing that we can see even from Belshazzar here is he was, he's clearly not a very devout man, but he's deeply religious. 
He takes part in the religious ceremonies. He even gives some credit to his gods, the, the gods of wood and stone and gold and silver. He, he gives them a nod. And it's so interesting. If you do some research on Nabonidus, some of those inscriptions of his dad, most of the prayers that we find are him praying for his son, Belshazzar, so that he would devote himself to gods and not just use them. So we learn something about this kid. He is religious, but he's only interested in religious benefits. That's it. And my question for you is, do we do the same things? Do we do the same things? There's a famous story from Jesus, a parable in Luke chapter 15, in which there are two lost sons that we are meant to compare and to contrast. There's a younger brother who wants to live like it's 1999. He runs off in reckless living. He wishes his father was dead. He takes his inheritance. He runs off. But then he returns home to the love and the benevolence of his father who reinstates him and enters him into a banquet feast to celebrate that his lost son was found. But then the elder brother, we discover his true intentions and his true heart because when his younger brother returns, he refuses to go into the banquet feast. Why? Why? Because we learn that he is also not interested in a relationship with his father. All he cares about is his father's stuff. And the return of his little brother, who will take back a piece of his inheritance, will adversely affect him. He has no concern for his father. He has no concern for his brother. He only cares about himself. And so here's the really difficult question that I have to lay at your feet that only you can answer. Even for those of us who are deeply religious, who go to church all the time, who give of our tithes and offerings, who serve faithfully, who do all the right things, you still have to ask yourself this question. Am I serving God because I want to make much of Jesus? Because I love Jesus? Because I want to devote my life to Jesus? Because I want a relationship with Jesus? Or are you doing it because you want God's stuff? And you want him to bless your life? Only you can answer that question. But it's a question that we must, must ask. Do you know what the Latin word for sin literally means? It's the word incurvatus, and it literally means to turn in upon oneself. And the reformer, Martin Luther, he once said this, sin is when man curves in upon himself. And so what Luther is saying, and it's absolutely true, is that Ultimately, sin is when we don't care about God, we don't care about our neighbor, all we care about is me. Me, 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 my, 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 my goals, my dreams, my aspirations, my wants. That is what life is all about. And so we can see here that you can uh, run away from God just as easily um, from partying like it's 1999 as you can by staying home, complying, and obeying the will of your father. But your motivations are not because you love your father, but because you love yourself. And so we have to be especially careful, I believe, with this third note on when we lose control. And so here's the remedy that we need to see. We all need a transformation of the heart. We all need a transformation of the heart. We need God to do a good work in us. See, we're all like Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. 
The only difference between these two is that God took Nebuchadnezzar's heart, his hardened heart, and he turned it into a heart of flesh. Only God can do that. Only he can bring about that miracle. And that same miracle needs to occur in your life and in mine. Otherwise, the outcome of our life will be just like Belshazzar's. See, this story has both a problem, an incredible problem, and an incredible cure and some incredible good news. For the remainder of our time, I want us to look at these two things. Here's the problem that, I need, that we have to look at. The writing is on the wall for all of us. For all of us. This is not an abstract story like, oh, that's really cool, you know. God took a hand and laid it on a wall and the plaster was cut into it and four words popped up and the next day or that night Medes and Persians came in. No, it's meant to serve as a beacon, a gateway, a signpost into exposing our own hearts for what they are. For us to realize that we have the heart of Belshazzar and we need God to do a good work in us. See, the Bible says that this is God's ultimate verdict for all of us. That we have been weighed and measured and found wanting. And that we have been building up our own kingdom and serving ourselves and soon God will take it all away. And the question is, will you turn to him? Will you turn to him? So he charges us with this. or He charges Belshazzar with this. Belshazzar takes the vessels of God and he uses them for his own purposes, right? He uses them to serve himself, to, to gain control, to bless himself. And that's exactly what sin is. What God is saying is we do exactly the same things. Sometimes we take consecrated vessels that belong to God and we serve ourselves with them. Let me, let me reveal to you the top four ways that we do this. We do this through our time, our talent, our treasure, and our bodies. Our time, our talent, our treasure, and our bodies. The Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer one, it says this, I am not my own, but I belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So let me give you just quickly two examples of how we do this today. The first is with our gifts and our talents, that we ultimately have to recognize that just like the goblets of God in the temple, our bodies are not our own. They were bought with a price. They belong to God. And that's the very reason why we say all y'all are priests. All of us represent God. All of us have a part to play in expanding God's kingdom in the world. Whether you are a nurse or a doctor or a teacher or a farmer or a custodian or a stay-at-home parent, all y'all are priests. And the question is not whether or not God has called you to ministry. The only question, always and forever, is where and how. Where and how. And will I be faithful to use the gifts that God has given me to help expand his kingdom? Will I join him in that? And here's the second way that we can do this. We can consider not just our gifts and talents, but our treasure and our resources. Our treasure and our resources. So again, we, we have to see that everything belongs to God. All of it. Otherwise, what I'm about to share with you is going to sound really kooky. 
It's going to sound really strange. But if we realize that we are not our own, but we were bought with a price, and everything we have and everything that we are belongs to God, then this will make all the sense in the world. For those of us who have much power, great influence, and great wealth, the rest of us should never envy someone like that. Though the world envies people like that, Christians should not, because we realize that with great power comes great responsibility. We realize that those people will, ha will be um, held to a higher standard than the rest of us. So one example of that, the Apostle Paul says, not all of you should desire to become teachers and preachers. That's me, right? Why? Because, Paul says, they will be judged more harshly in the end of their days. And that's the reason why I always encourage you to bring your Bibles, to keep me honest, that we're always seeing Scripture for what it is. And that's what the elders do in this church. Every word that I say, they're accountable to. And they, they want to make sure that always, 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 gospel of God, the word of God is central and first no matter what. And so that's why I encourage you to pray for me and for us as pastors that we would do this really well. But in the same way, some of us might not have power or influence. Maybe we have a lot of natural resources, a lot of wealth. And again, at the end of the day, the question is, are we giving what is God's back to him? You think about what God says in the book of Malachi. He says this, will a mere mortal rob God? And God says, yet you rob me. But I ask you, how, are you rob how am I robbing you? How are we robbing you? And God says, in your tithes, and in your offerings. See, of all that the Lord has entrusted to us, God has called us to give back what ultimately belongs to him. A tithe is typically 10%. It starts with that, but ultimately that's not what it's all about. It's a heart that recognizes that everything, everything belongs to God. And do I see my life working in such a way that realizes that my eyes are fixed on eternity? And that everything that I have isn't coming with me anyway. And so I want to make a gospel impact with what God has given me. Am I living my life that way? So here's a question for you to consider. Do you give sufficiently and live extravagantly? Or do you live sufficiently and give extravagantly? The answer to that question might help you determine where you are placing your value in which kingdom? The kingdom of the world or the kingdom of God? And I feel so compelled to give a caveat to this. If you are a guest, this is not a drive-by shooting. We're just so blessed that you are here. You should feel no compulsion to give whatsoever. Ultimately, the foundational question that we have to ask ourselves is this. Are we robbing God of what belongs to him? In our tithes, in our life, in our giving, in our resources, in our influence, in our power. Everything belongs to God. Are we living like Belshazzar? Taking the sacraments, taking these sanctified elements and using them for ourselves? Or are we using them for God? So the central theme of this story is that all kingdoms will rise and fall, but the kingdom of God stands forever. And the question that we get to ask is, do we believe that? Do we believe that? Years later, Jesus would stand in an upper room with his disciples. 
and he would make a similar, take a similar goblet with wine and he would say these words to all of his disciples. He would say, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Do you see what that means in the context of the story? Do you see what God is communicating to his people in the context of this story? Here's the way that I put it in your note sheet. The cure is this. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us so that the outcome of Belshazzar would never have to be the outcome for us. And the only question that we ever have to ask is this, Jesus, would you drink that cup for me? Would you drink the cup of God's wrath so that I never have to experience that? So that I could be restored with you, restored to my heavenly father, restored to right relationship with you. But that's what it's gonna take, that we would be willing to ask the question and to commit our lives wholeheartedly to Jesus. You've been listening to the latest sermon in our current Daniel series, Thriving in Babylon. You can find resources and information about this teaching series and more information about our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time for the weekly sermon at Gateway. Gateway.